God is love. Let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the anointed sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he is in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the, that the father has sent his son as a savior to the world. God abides in those who confess that Jesus is the son of God and they abide in God. So we have known and believe love that God has for us. God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness on this day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts our fear for fear has not has to do with his punishment and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love we love because he first loved us those who say i love god and hate their brothers and sisters are liars for those who do not love a brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love god whom they have not seen the commandment we and the commandment we have from god from him to this is this those who love god must love their brothers and sisters also the reading is matthew chapter 5 verses 38 to 48 you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth but i say to you do not resist resist an evil doer but if anyone strikes you on the right cheek turn the other side also and if anyone wants to sue to see you and take your coat give your cloak as well and if anyone forces you to go one mile go also the second mile give to everyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you love your enemies you have heard that it was said you shall love your enemies and hate your and hate your enemy but i say to you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous for if you love those who love you what reward will you have do not even the tax collectors do the same and if you greet other and if you greet only your brothers and sisters what more are you than others do not even the gentiles do the same be perfect therefore as the heavenly father father is perfect as we make our way through the sermon on the mount those of you who were with us last sunday will remember don took us through some very tough stuff 
as she helped us think about hell, about how Jesus' first hearers would have heard that teaching, and she challenged the she raised the challenge of asking how much of the language of hell is about our need to send people to hell to assure ourselves of our righteousness and our safety. Well, this morning, I'm going to start with an equally demanding thought. God expects and calls and asks us to be perfect. There it is, be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. What happens to you when you hear that? What's the first thought, the unfiltered, unmanaged reaction that's just there when you hear that? Be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And they say the gospel is good news. I don't think there's a lot of good news for us as we hear that, or rather, I don't think we hear it as good news. The drive to be perfect is deep within many of us, and it's painful, and it's damaging, and it's fear-making and paralyzing. Or it's narcissistic and confirms us in our self-righteousness and judgmentalism and exclusivity, because we dare not be wrong. So either we hear the call to be perfect, and knowing we are not, we are lost in despair, or we are trapped in trying ever harder, while fearing and denying that every attempt is failing. Or we know ourselves to be the best we can be, and we're better than most, and so we're confirmed in our self-image of perfection and find ourselves in the privileged and rather isolating position of condemning those who cannot reach our goodness. What do you hear when you hear it? Not when you analyze it, not when you get out the commentary and investigate what it means, not when you do the work that we're just about to do, about how we might hear what Jesus is saying, but what's your first instinctive, unreflecting response when you hear these words? Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And since you will have gathered that I'm going to suggest that when we hear it first time, we are often mishearing, since that's what's going to happen, why am I pausing and not getting on to how we might hear this as a word of life and hope? Why am I pushing you, or at least pushing me, to places that are uncomfortable and demanding. Well, two weeks ago, when I was thinking with you about a much earlier part of the Sermon on the Mount, we spent some time on that call, let your light shine so that people will see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. And I suggested we don't get any choice about being a light. What we do will indicate who we worship, whether that is the Father in heaven that Jesus is talking about and that we meet and learn about not only in Jesus' words but in his life, or whether it's some other God or idol, as Dawn was pointing out to us last week. And it's the same thing I want to get at here. For the way we respond to these words, the impact that these words have on us, the reaction they draw from us, indicates or uncovers for us who we think God is. And if we find ourselves reacting with despair and desperation of trying to get it right, together with that sinking sense that whatever we realistically face the truth of what we are, we are not perfect, then I suggest the God we are worshipping, the God we are hearing in this call, is a God of punishment, a God who keeps us in line by impossible demands and then blaming us when we fail, a God who in fact is unfair and arbitrary. Now we almost certainly don't believe in such a God with our minds. 
I'm pretty sure if I asked any of you to tell me who God is, these are not the first words that would come to your mind. Well, they might be the first word that comes to your mind, actually. They're not the first words you would use to tell me. But if that sense of never being able to get it right, and that being a problem or even a fear, is our first reaction to that sentence, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, then I suggest that within all the theology, within all the verbalized and truly held conviction about who God is and how God acts, there is lurking this tyrannical and capricious God who must be placated or of whom we are afraid and therefore who in our deepest selves we try to avoid. A God who in fact is a projection of our deepest fears, our most scary encounters with a difficult world. And if we hear these words and feel confirmed in our all rightness and deepened or supported in our realization that others are wrong and to be condemned and dealt with and put in their place, which is far from the center of the love of God, then I suggest that that too shows us the God who we are worshiping. And again, it's a God who is a projection, but this time our projection of our need to be right, our anxiety to keep things safe, our sense of self-righteousness, our narcissism that sees our understanding, our way of being, our choices as identified with those of God and others as wrong and to be condemned. Now again, I doubt if any of us would articulate our understanding of God in words like that. And our truly held understandings of God are different. But our truly held understandings of God are not always the ones that are deepest in our psyche, not always the ones that play out in our actions and our words and our edits. So just pause for a moment and don't be careful. Don't decide what you ought to think. Don't worry too much because nobody's going to come and check. What do you hear when you hear these words? Really hear deep down in the most you part of your heart and soul, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. For all of us, without exception, the God we worship and believe in and respond to deep within us is as much shaped by our history and our capacity for idolatry as it is by anything. And at the center of Jesus' ministry and teaching and living and dying and rising is not telling us how to live and is not what to do or not do. It's not even how to bring in the kingdom. It is his commitment to telling and showing who God truly is and therefore who we are. And the nature of the kingdom grows out of that, and how we should live grows out of that, but at the heart of it is who is God? It's perhaps the most important question we ever need to answer. Who is God? Because it shapes how we encounter the world, it shapes who we are, shapes how we live together. And here, Jesus is as explicit as he is anywhere, both about who God is, and therefore about who we are. God is the one who loves, who loves unconditionally and who acts out of that unconditional love. Be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect and he's just told us how this heavenly father is perfect and it's not in moral purity and it's not in complete power and majesty and it's not even in holy unapproachability and all those may be true but that's not the point. It is that he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That is what the perfection of God consists of. Unconditional, absolute love. 
That is how God is perfectly God. And you know here that perfect in this term means completely, without compromise, with lack. The, the Greek word is telos. It means the end or the fulfillment, the fullness of being. And this is the perfection of God. God is perfectly God. And how is God perfectly God? By loving without fear or favor, without discrimination and without prejudice. His sun rises on everybody. The gift of life itself, the sustaining of life, the light of life. And it's not only given to those and such as those. It's not constricted to those who can repay it, for who can. And the rain is sent on all. The promise of fruitfulness, the possibility of flourishing, the gift of the life-giving that is water. And it's not limited to those who are right, or those who are inside, or those who are judged to have tried hard enough. God is fully God in showering blessing and life and hope and possibility on all. In whichever category we put ourselves, the righteous or the unrighteous, and in whichever category we put somebody else, none of that makes a difference. For God is fully God. God is perfectly God in showering rain and shining sun on all. And so the calling to be perfect as God is perfect is not some sort of moral category we can never reach. And it's not some self-righteous fortress that leaves us cut off and judging everybody else. It's the willingness and the daringness to love. To love those who are lovable and to love those who are not. Because it is to love as we are loved, not according to deserving, but as an intentional commitment. And so we become who we are. We live the reality of who we are, the children of God. For we live the life of God. And children of God sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Who would not want to be this? Who would object to anybody being a child of God? But listen to Jürgen Moltmann's comment on this. Anyone who is a child of the Father in heaven, and how innocent that sounds, that's Mortman's comment, how innocent that sounds, becomes a troublemaker and a spoil sport in a world which has settled down without God and with the law of retaliation. And so we come to the rest of the passage. How to love, what it means to love perfectly as God is perfect with this unconditional love. A child of God becomes a troublemaker and a spoil sport in a world which has settled down without God and with the, with the law of retaliation. The world that Jesus describes of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is one working with this law of retaliation. The lex talionis, as it's called, this strict repayment of an injury, is there to limit vengeance, to keep violence and hatred and fear and playground playing, paying back from spiraling, spiraling ever upwards and outwards. If you lose an eye, you can only take an eye in return. You can't take both eyes. If you lose a tooth, you can take a tooth in return. You can't knock out someone's entire mouth. If someone kills your brother, you get to kill their brother, not their brother, their cousin, and their uncle. The lex talionis is to keep it limited. And you have heard that said, says Jesus, but I say not even that. Do not resist the evil person. Well, actually, what he says is do not show violence to the evil person. It's not that Jesus doesn't resist evil. His language to those whom he believed to be damaged in the kingdom was not that of meek compliance and letting them walk all over him and not challenging it. He didn't, he's not here saying acquiesce to evil. 
He's saying, change the rules. Become a spoil sport and a troublemaker. And most of you will have heard me preach enough over the last ten and a half years to know how I have learned to interpret these verses about turning the other cheek and giving up your cloak and going the extra mile. These are not words about being doormats. These are not teachings that condone abuse and call us just to let people walk all over us. What Jesus is saying here is what is, he says elsewhere in the New Testament, do not return evil for evil. Don't react with violence to the evil one. And the three examples he gives to demonstrate this, they're about not letting somebody get away with it. They're about not repaying violence with violence. But they're about being spoil sports to the game of power and retaliation and domination and humiliation. So if someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. We need a demonstration here. I have a glamorous assistant whom I hope is going to come and help me. If Simon had been here, I'd have done this to, to him. But Simon not being here, I have twisted Ian's arm. And he's graciously agreed to do it. Turn the other cheek is to do, it's to do with humiliation. Okay, so the context in which uh, Jesus is speaking, you don't use your left hand. Your left hand is impure. So if I'm going to strike somebody on the cheek, it's a, it's a gesture of dismissal. It's a gesture of get out the way. I do love him. Now, if you turn your other cheek, now what do I do? If I'm going to strike him again, it's going to have to be this way. <laughs> okay, that is acknowledging him as an equal. In the context in which Jesus is speaking, that dismisses, but this says, we're equals. When you turn the other cheek, you're saying to this person, you can hit me, but you have to acknowledge I'm a human being and I'm as much a human being as you are. Thanks, Mark. Let them walk all over you. It's refuse to give in. Change the game. Then we move on to the courts. If somebody sues you for your cloak, let them have your undergarment too. Creditor has taken a poor man to court over an unpaid loan. That's the background here. Only the poorest of the poor were subject to such treatment. But Deuteronomy provided that a creditor could take as collateral for a loan a poor person's outer robe. It did have to be returned each evening so the poor man would have something in which to sleep. But Jesus says, if he takes your coat, give him your undergarments as well. Now that would mean stripping off all their clothing and marching out of the court stark naked. You'll be glad to know I'm not about to illustrate this. But nakedness is taboo in Judaism. But the shame doesn't fall on the naked one. The shame falls on the person viewing or causing the nakedness. And you can see that in Genesis. By stripping off, the debtor brings shame on the one who is demanding his cloak. Think about the reaction. There stands the creditor, covered in shame, holding the poor man's garment and being given, without asking for it, his undergarment. And the tables have been turned, and the debtor has no hope of winning the case because the law is in favor of the, the creditor, the strong man, but he has transcended the attempt to humiliate him. He's risen above the shame. He's registered a protest against the system that has oppressed him, 
and has uncovered the injustice and retained his dignity. For it is the one who is causing the nakedness who is humiliated in that system. And going the extra mile. Well, it's an occupied territory. The ordinary soldier couldn't afford the slaves necessary to carry the load, but they did have the right to demand that a member of the indigenous population carried their load a mile. We see it happen with Simon of Cyrene being forced to carry Jesus' cross. It's the same law. But it was a mile. By carrying the pack a second mile, that was an infraction of the military code. Now, with a few exceptions, minor infractions were left to the control of the centurion. He might fine the offending soldier. He might flog him. He might put him on short rations. He might send him outside the camp. He might force him to stand all day before the general's tent holding mud just to humiliate him. Or if he was a friend, he might just tell him off and say, don't do it again. Point is, the soldier doesn't know what's going to happen. But what's happening with somebody going the second mile is he's changing the rules and putting him, putting the soldier in a very uncertain position. He doesn't know how to react now. The rules are Caesar's, but Jesus tells them they can respond according to the kingdom of God and Caesar has no power over that. You just imagine the soldier, you will carry my pack a mile. Hang on, stop. <laughs> no, you can't go any further. Where, where's the power lying in that? This is to change the rules completely. And Jesus takes it to the logical conclusion. Instead of playing the game of retaliation or joining in with the dominating power, Jesus gives another of those you have heard it said. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy. It's a wonderful poster. Love your enemy. It scares the out of them. And that's what this is about. Turn the tables, change the, change the rules, refuse the pattern that says there are enemies. Withdraw from a description of the world on the basis of goodies and baddies, of in and out, of loved and unloved, and live as the children of God who loves without condition. It's not about go, not giving in to evil. It's not about letting it go unchallenged. It's about uncovering it, showing it for what it is, but doing that in ways that preserve our dignity, our personhood, our integrity as the beloved ones of God and that of other people because they are also the beloved ones of God. And we show them that too. Our call, our invitation is to be perfect as God is perfect. As God is perfect. Not as we think God is perfect. Not even as we want or fear God is perfect. But as Jesus tells us God is giving sun and rain, light and life and hope and blessing to all. And so we change the rules. We are small sports and troublemakers in contexts where people have chosen to settle down into patterns of retaliation, or even worse, ramping up the anger and the hitting out and the excluding. But if we play this new game, these new rules and ways of relating, all sorts of other possibilities open up because the kingdom comes into being. One of my favorite examples is from the practice of the poet Ivor Cutler. If you haven't come across Ivor Cutler, he is weird, but he does some interesting stuff or did some interesting stuff. One of the things he used to do was make sticky labels and go around giving them to people. And he got on a bus one day and came across what was a threatening to be violent altercation between the driver and, and a passenger. And in the middle of it, he reached across and put a label on the driver's lapel. 
who looked down, stopped shouting, paused, and then burst into laughter because the label said, you're beautiful. And it changed the rules. It altered the mood without being drawn into the game of violence and retribution. It's not about giving in to evil, not about letting evil get away with it. It's about something quite new and quite beautiful. And here's where it takes life and finds its roots. When we dare to trust that we are beloved of God, not just tolerated, not just let into this relationship with God on the basis of some legal transaction that doesn't have anything to do with me, but loved absolutely, utterly, completely, and unchangeably. And if it's true of me, it's true of everybody. If it's true of you, it is true of everybody. The beauty of grace is that God loves us as we are. And the wonder of grace is that that is true of everybody. God does not play favorites. The perfection of God is that God loves, gives life and joy and possibility to all. And the call is to live that promise. And it's hard because we're afraid. We're afraid of God. We're afraid of others. We're afraid of ourselves. Or it's hard because we've made God in our own image and so God must hate those whom we hate and so we get to hate and condemn them even more because that's what God would want to do. But those words won't let us take either of those paths. We don't get to fear because love is absolute and love casts out fear. And we don't get to condemn because God is not made in our image. But we are made in God's image. And so when we are reaching our perfection, it is in daring to love as God loves, to love ourselves and love others. And God loves us. This life, the kingdom that comes into being as we live this life, does so as and through our trust in that love. So, be loved and love and get creative with it and see the kingdom come. Let us pray. God of love, God of life, God who loves us in ways that are too big for us to speak and know. We thank you for all the ways in which love comes to us. The people who love us, the words of love and hope spoken to us over many years that give us confidence. For your love mediated to us through words and actions of people around us. We thank you for the gifts of love that have made us who we are. We thank you for the capacity to love that you have placed within us and for the opportunities we are given to exercise that. We thank you for those whom we love and for the experience of being able to love. And trusting in your love, not just for us, but for all that you have made, we bring our prayers. We pray for those who feel unloved, 
for those who have been unloved, who have been treated with contempt, dismissal, who have been ignored or unwanted, who've been left on the outside. We pray for all who have been so hurt as children that they cannot love, they cannot love themselves or others. We pray for those who are afraid that nobody will ever love them again. For those who are afraid to love because they have been so hurt. And for all who withdraw and live in isolation. And for those who lash out in order to protect themselves. At an individual level and at community levels, as societies embody these positions and so communities come apart and violence and war begins to grow. We pray for families torn apart by anger and fear and jealousy, by violence. We pray for neighborhoods where people can't talk to one another because of long-standing traditions of enmity and mistrust. We pray for those we have been remembering earlier in the service who have had to leave their homes because it has become unsafe and who try to find ways of making new lives. We thank you for the gift of love and fellowship within such communities. We thank you for those times when people are welcomed into new communities. But we know there's other stories running too, and we pray for your gifts of peace and your strength for all who work for peace and your encouragement when it seems hopeless and your creativity when things seem stuck and there appears to be no way forward. We pray for world leaders carrying heavy responsibilities and doing it with the strengths and weaknesses that are their own. We pray that you will be at work, that you will bring peace and justice, and that we might be part of that. And we pray for ourselves. Where we are unloving, you will forgive us. And where we believe ourselves unlovable, you show us we are wrong and you will heal us. And that where love is rich within us and around us, you will help us live that out with freedom and joy and the blessing of many. For we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.